coronavirus is upending our lives and reshaping society. In this podcast, The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, we're hard at work producing new episodes that speak to the current challenges. But we also thought that this was a moment to go back through our archive of more than 100 conversations and bring you some of our favourites. Coronavirus threatens our mental well-being as well as our physical health. The challenge is to use this moment to the fullest, to think more deeply about where our lives are going and how we can live with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. Today, we bring you a conversation with Minister and Social Justice campaigner Brad Chilcott on compassion, altruism and activism. I now just believe that all people are completely equal regardless of gender, sexuality, ethnicity, culture, that all people should be um, equally loved and valued and included in society. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. As the grandchild of a Methodist minister, I've always found church people interesting. But there's few more interesting ministers, priests or pastors in Australia than Brad Chilcott. Uh, Brad is the pastor of the Activate Church in South Australia, uh, somebody who thinks deeply about moral issues and engages on issues around refugees, homelessness and social inclusion. He's involved actively in his church, but also in so many big debates. He's somebody who's unafraid of diving into the political conversation. He has a a real sense of calm about him. Uh, And just being around Brad uh, seems to bring my heart rate down. Uh, He's somebody who's thoughtful, engaged and engaging. And it's a pleasure to have him on the Good Life podcast today. Thanks so much, Andrew. I'm not sure many people would agree that I bring their heart rates down, but (laughs) (laughs) intense is usually the word I get described (laughs) as, but but I'm glad that works for you. (laughs) It certainly does. So tell us about your, uh, your, your upbringing. Did you grow up in quite a religious household? Yeah, I grew up in a very religious household. Our um, Christian denomination uh, was called Christian Brethren. It is called Christian Brethren. It's a very fundamentalist um, part of the Christian church. There's an even more fundamentalist section called the Exclusive Brethren. So we were a bit uh, less extreme than them, but it still the meant... Inclusive Brethren then? <laughs> well, um, you know, when I, when I was young in our, in our first congregation... Women weren't allowed to speak in church. They had to wear hats to church as a as a rule. Um, and I remember, you know, when women decided that they would no longer wear hats to to church, that was a huge issue. And then 
Um, later on, when I was a teenager, they allowed women to um, not to preach, but they were allowed to give the notices and speak, you know, publicly from the front of the congregation, and that was a huge progressive step forward. <laughs> so that was the um, environment that I that I grew up in for for much of my young days until I was about 18, 19. Did you enjoy going to church? Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed the friendship that I had with other young kids. I enjoyed um, being part of the youth program that we had uh, going on. And there's a strange thing, I guess, about it being just what you're used to and what you're brought up in. And it's not until you're exposed to other ways of seeing the world that you even have the opportunity to question um, the way it is and, you know, whether this uh, way of understanding gender and um, life and people and the priorities and purposes, you know, you don't don't even know that other people think a different way to that. So, yeah, so I enjoyed it and I've still got some great friends from from that period of life who mostly have also moved on from – from that kind of expression of faith. But, um, yeah, I, I do look back with some, um, I, I wonder how I ended up here. <laughs> <laughs> when did you first decide, uh, decide that you could be a pastor? Uh, I felt like in the church that I grew up in, um, that it was almost obvious that I would end up doing some kind of of leadership in in that church. And so at a quite a young age, 16, 17, I started leading a lot of the youth programs. At 18, became like the, the youth leader of the church, which um, I was not a good youth leader <laughs> at why, 18. Why, why not? Uh, I mean, partly you want to say it was a it was a different age, but I was just irresponsible. I think we would do things like have 120 young people out um, on a on an overnight or on a couple of um, big coach liners with six of us leaders, and I was the oldest one. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. I don't know how much of that would get through um, child protection <laughs> these days. <laughs> Uh, and did you then go on to study at university? Yeah, so we were doing a bunch of programs in a local high school, which I was quite personally committed to. And so I decided that I would do university as a way of, mostly at the beginning, as a way of continuing to do my, my youth work on the side and and still have enough to, to survive on our study. Um what did you study? But originally I joined up to do business management and marketing and um, and I began at University of SA doing that and actually enjoyed it, the content, but about six weeks in decided this isn't what my future is going to look like. And so I withdrew from that when did uh, youth work at TAFE, for, Cert 4 I think at TAFE for the remainder of that year and then enrolled in professional writing and communication after that at um, again at UniSA and completed that degree in an honours in linguistics after that. Hmm. Were you working as a, cha- a chaplain at, uh, at the time as well? Yes, I became a chaplain at Modbury High School at some point during that degree, the second year in, I think, and um, I was the first chaplain that Modbury had had for 10 years. 
back in the days when I was a chaplain, it wasn't funded by the federal government. It was um, local faith communities all, you know, contributing uh, money. So it had me speaking in Catholic churches and Anglican churches and uh, Pentecostal churches and a, a whole bunch of different experiences on Sundays as I kind of went around and told them what their what their donations were doing. Um, so I was the first one in 10 years and the teachers when I got there were very unhappy that I was there largely. Um, I think the principal and some parents had got together and said this was a, a good idea to have um, an extra uh, support for the students that the school wasn't paying for. And um, yeah, so there I was. So for people who don't know South Australia all that well, yeah. tell us about the demographics of Modbury. It's in the northeastern suburbs. Now it's um, changing a little bit to be more multicultural. Um, at the time, it, uh, the school I was in especially was, you would say, lower middle class socioeconomic group. So there were people that were fairly well off and a lot of people who were not, not so well off and a lot of quite at risk young people in the school. And how did you find the experience there? Well, about about 10 weeks in, so I was not welcomed by the staff. Um, students were responding okay, but they thought it was a bit weird that they had this um, pastor sitting in an office and <laughs> strolling the, the uh, yard at lunchtime. Although at the time I did have giant uh, sideburns and um, and at times just a massive Bushman's beard. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, maybe I was uber relevant or something. But, um, you know, it was a weird first 10 weeks. And then a student brought a gun to school and stood on the balcony uh, just outside my office and uh, shot himself in the head and which was witnessed by a few hundred students. It was in a break between lessons. Students could see from some of the other windows or from just below the um, ledge that he was on. There was a teacher standing right next to him trying to take the gun off him who um, then, you know, went went missing for a while and I was sent to to find that teacher if I could. Yeah, so that kind of changed my interaction with the school for the next probably two weeks every day. There was a line of kids, students outside my office who just waited at l- often all day just to get some time with me to talk about how they were responding to, to what they'd seen and experienced. And, yeah, and at the time um, I was not doing well myself personally and so it was a, it was a really um, probably quite a formative time for me for the for the future of where I was going in in life as well what do you say to a kid who's witnessed something like that like really looking back on that it was just a whole lot of listening and and having somebody that they could um talk to without any judgment or without saying you know that's the wrong response to have in this situation or you know here and there some tools of you know make sure you're if you're sharing your feelings, not um, bottling them in. Make sure there's safe places for you to be, and mm. here's some avenues to go down if you know if it gets um, too much and you need to uh, for yourself to feel safe. Here's some people that you can call or talk to. But but it really was just a lot of listening and making my office and my company a safe and um, peaceful place 
to be because the, the school community was, yeah, just in, in total shock. And so, you know, that you've already got the trauma of what you've witnessed and then everyone around you is, is not in a, in a right space at that time. Mm. So, um, yeah, often people would just come in my office and cry for an hour and just, just be, be with them, you know. Um, I, you know, and I, I wasn't there as a counsellor, so, and I wasn't trained as a counsellor. I was more there as a, as a friendly support person who would, you know, be able to navigate the initial trauma and shock as a, just as a su- support, but then, you know, provide ongoing friendship and, and company and a, a bit of a resource to point for, um, to point them towards other support mechanisms if they need them, needed them. And we should remind uh, listeners of uh, Lifeline support uh, and that the Lifeline number is always there if anyone listening feels that they need that. Uh, how did that shape you in terms of what you then decided you wanted to do with your life? Well, it, it probably... Uh, we didn't grow up wealthy or um, privileged... We were definitely privileged in our... Um, you know, because I'm a white straight male but we were not wealthy and we didn't uh, hang with wealthy people growing up but um, I'd n- not really ever seen kid, young people uh, who'd been abused or who were seriously struggling with depression or suffering in um, regards to their you know, family life or home life and so... Um, that experience and then some of the young people that I met through the follow-up um, really opened my eyes to what other young people were enduring just as as part of their day-to-day life. Um, just things that I could have almost not comprehended apart from, you know, hearing about them at when I was doing my youth work degree at TAFE, but actually interacting with people who would, you know, disclose abuse to me or... There was one young person that um, ended up coming to live with my wife and I after I took her home one day and her mum was throwing all of her belongings out onto the to the front lawn and saying, you're no longer my daughter and, um, you know, get out and then proceeded to a couple of days later actually leave the state without telling this young woman where she was going or that she was leaving. She just suddenly disappeared. And so all of that was just outside my frame of reference completely. Um, And so it just started me thinking about, you know, maybe there is more to life than I guess the the way most churches that I'd been associated with framed faith was that it was still in the end mostly about us, you know, me and my uh, salvation or my prosperity or my um, feelings of fulfilment and purpose. And, you know, we had to be nice and charitable and generous and, and all of that. But in the end, it was you need to be right with God or you need to be um, saved or you need to be sorting out your eternity. Like it was just very individualistic and, and about me. And this exposed me to a whole new 
way of thinking that maybe life is not about me, maybe it's about others and that if we're um, going to take the concept of or the things that we'd learned about this person called Jesus seriously, then it was probably definitely not about me. It was about, you know, being willing to live as through the lens of how can my life be of benefit to other people who uh, don't have the the privileges that I have and the safety that I have and the um, opportunities that I have. So I think that's kind of where it began. But that comes at a cost to you and your your household. Um, my mum's parents, uh, after their kids moved out, used to have people living in the household uh, with them. I was talking to my uncle the other day and said, you know, it must have been really interesting coming back to visit, seeing all of these uh, people there, sometimes, sometimes refugee families or people who are just down on their luck. And he said, well, yes, it was fascinating sometimes. And then sometimes it was less fascinating, such as the uh, the person that relapsed with their drug addiction and began stealing uh, stealing money out of my mother's, uh, mother's wallet. And uh, uh, that's that's a hard way to live. It's a form of radical altruism, which, as you say, follows in the path of, of, of Jesus, uh, which, which was not an easy life. Um, did you have a sense that you were choosing a pretty uh, rock-strewn road? I think a growing sense of that, um, because even though I think I was often taking the um, the message or the vision of the congregations I was a part of to the extreme. You know, I was the one kind of pushing the boundaries and saying let's do more for people or um, let's think of these this community that we haven't thought of before. I was often pushing that. I was still always kind of within the bounds of the safe things to think, <laughs> you know, you know, I might have been had a bit of out there creativity or or innovative ideas or hung out with people that weren't Christians a bit more than, you know, the average person in my faith community, but it was still within the bounds of acceptability. I think it was when um you know, when we when my solidarity or um yeah, standing with the marginalized kind of started to the acceptability of that started to be questioned that it became a bit harder and more more real. Um, I think we, I mean, we've had along the, the journey, we have definitely had some of what kind of you described uh, in your family history of, you know, not the usual nine to five, go to work, come home and switch off. Like we've, we've never had that in my household. We've always had a house that a range of uh, people come through and that the kids are exposed to and all of that. Um, so that's been different. And, and maybe and maybe like a good example is even when our son Harrison was born with, you know, heaps of health complications and not expected to live, we didn't slow down our, you know, service of others through, through our church community really at all and... Yeah, and that has continued to now, and he's you know still up to Operation Twenty One now, and um, yeah, so that, so it has really been a lifestyle that we've we've had for a long time. 
And amidst all of Harrison's operations included one in which uh, part of your body is transferred into him, right? Two yeah, years I gave, ago you gave, gave him your kidney. I did. That was Operation 16, I believe. <laughs> so, yeah, he's had definitely a very full life and has grown up a lot in 10 years. And, uh, yes, and now is the, the owner of, uh, of my kidney. <laughs> what's, it, what's it like to donate a kidney? Um, probably less intense than I thought. Like it's the operation is painful. There's, you know, a preparation period. Um, there was a couple of days after the operation that the pain was ridiculous, but then really once the pain goes away, you're, you know, in my, in my case, cause I have another very healthy kidney. It's just life as, as normal. Um, watching Harrison go through the being the recipient of a kidney, that's that was just the worst. Yeah. Traumatic in every every way. Why what I would have thought there would have been some uh satisfaction or joy that came from knowing that your healthy kidney was inside inside your son. You didn't you didn't feel that. You you were you were simply worried for him as you would have been probably since 15 or 17. Probably, I mean, there's, like, he's alive now because of my kidney, so there's definitely a sense of joy that he's with us. And um, But I think it was that, well, firstly, the immediate, his immediate reaction to the transplant, as in the few days in hospital afterwards, were were horrendous he was hallucinating for days there was a couple of times he nearly nearly passed away on the in the hospital um you know one time where his lungs filled with fluid and the um medical staff didn't realize until he was as you know almost drowned in his own you know internal fluid and so there was just some horrendous experiences um and then the year after the transplant he um was just in and out of hospital constantly for a year. So, you know, there's part of you that thinks, here, I'll give a kidney and then my son's going to be healthy and energetic again. And it was the, the opposite of that for the first year. But also, despite all of his health challenges before the transplant, he was always the most energetic kid in the room, the happiest kid in the room and all of that. Um but the anti-rejection drugs, which, you know, lower your immune system and cause you to put on a bunch of weight and all of that has really affected his uh, mental health since the since the transplant. So it's what kind of one of those situations where, you know, it's the only, it was the only way forward and it was the right thing and he has life and he's not on constant dialysis and all of those positives and then also the the daily um, reality of post-transplant life is not good for us. So, yeah. Yes. So another example in which radical altruism isn't as easy as you might think at the yeah, outset. that's right. And, you know, and to especially I think my wife's, Rachel's credit, we, yeah, I guess with a story like ours, it would be very easy just to make, everything in our life about Harrison and his situation and caring for him. And, um, you know, we have really since 
the beginning made life about others and made Harrison an integral part of that, you know, like our, and all three of our kids are just fully a part of that in every every way. Now, you became a pastor at uh, Activate Church nine years ago. Uh, what's it like to take over your own congregation? Did you have a, a sense of nervousness as, uh, as you stepped into that role? Yeah, so we took over a existing congregation that was kind of on its way to, to dying. There's a couple of dozen people um, ageing and, um, yeah, not not in a really healthy place and said, well, now it's going to have this whole new set of values and it's going to be, we defined ourselves from the beginning as a community of activists, which is not um, probably the normal tagline on, a, <laughs> on on many churches. It is on some, but not, not on many. And definitely not on the, <laughs> the aging little church that we, <laughs> that we took on. And so, yeah, it was quite a lot of work to encourage people to think of the faith through a different frame especially in the early days our whole thing was faith isn't about what happens on a for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning in a in a nice building somewhere it's actually what goes on the rest of the week and how that is pointed towards um uh, yeah setting the world to right or building a society of justice and inclusion and and serving others and that we said very bluntly from the beginning, this isn't a place to come and get religious services from. It's a place to be encouraged and inspired to go and serve others. So that sets you up as a quite a different culture to most um, congregations and means that some people that are used to the pastor that, you know, is having coffee with a different person every day to listen to their woes is not not what they had in me. Mm, mm. <laughs> so, yeah, it's very different. One of the issues you uh, uh, focused on early on was the issue of refugee acceptance and you founded Welcome to Australia in 2011. Mm. Uh, what was the origin of Welcome to Australia why, and why... Why did you choose to focus on refugees, given the many other community challenges that you must have been looking at that would have all been physically closer to, uh, to, to home? Well, well, firstly, in launching out of Activate, we had a whole number of Congolese refugees join our community. And, you know, I'd, I was always a progressive, um, always a socially justice-minded person on the issue of refugees and the politics of it. Um, but then when we met this Congolese family, one in particular that had 12 kids, um, six of them at least, maybe more, were children of um, brothers and sisters that had been killed in the Civil War and this family had taken all the kids on and then moved them to Australia. And I guess as our lives kind of entwined in theirs and we watched their... Uh, struggles with, well, firstly, what they'd seen and escaped from, but then just what they went through, you know, trying to settle in Australia. There was a whole part of that that made me think there is a whole lot more work we need to do um, to build a culture of welcome and acceptance here, like, that is not going to be solved by winning a policy argument, but 
um, is about how the national debate is influenced and or influences daily life. Like it doesn't happen in a in a separate space where you can argue about whether people are criminals and queue jumpers and whatever over here and then hope that on the ground in our schools and workplaces and suburbs that people get along kindly. <laughs> it, it just doesn't work that way. So that that's kind of where it began. But then we, as in we as in Australia, opened up the Inverbrachie Detention Centre outside of Adelaide. Um, and one of the... A number of locals protested the opening of that centre, not because we were incarcerating uh, innocent women and children and families, but because their house prices would go down and crime would come into their local area and all of that. And one of the um, stories on the news included a 10-year-old Aussie kid holding up a sign that said, sink the boats. And I guess when I saw that, I thought, whatever you think of our policy, something has gone wrong in our soul if we, if a parent can think it's acceptable to send their child out with that, with that sign. And that, um, and I guess on a bit more analysis, we, me and a couple of friends thought there's no positive voice in this debate. It's a slanging match between left and right that um, middle Australia had kind of checked out from um, and also wasn't, there was no one just calling out the best in Australia and saying, here's what we could be. It was all just like, you guys are racist pricks and should be sent to the Hague and you guys are, you know, um, mindless lefties who bleeding hearts. You know, it was just this accusatory um, us versus them atmosphere. So we wanted to create a positive voice in the conversation. We wanted to um, be the be and be people that reached out to pop culture Australia, not those that were already on the side of uh, people seeking asylum and refugees. And we wanted to mostly change hearts and minds through relationships and um, humanising the people we were talking about, rather than um, uh, yeah, arguing details and data and policy. And so we started a, we started with just a simple idea. Let's have welcome parties in homes, schools, offices, uh, places of worship, and put it out on social media. And within three months, it had a hundred welcome parties across Australia, and um, had the Adelaide Crows football club sign up. Uh, well, one of their players sign up as an ambassador, but the Crows send four players out to our launch and allow us to film in their club rooms and. And when I think they kind of lent their brand to our idea, it really kind of cemented us as a safe organisation to for people to work with um, without having that um, that angry politics attached to it. And so, and I'm, you know, often I was speaking at those angry rallies as well. So it's not that I disagree with the values that those um, groups are fighting for, but we had a strategy of reaching another group of Australians that weren't being reached by that method. And, and that's what Welcome to Australia was about in the beginning. Yeah, I remember giving a speech, well, it must have been uh, three or four years ago, and having a woman in the audience come up to me afterwards and say, uh, you were talking about inequality and you focused on an aspect of the Australian story that engendered pride. And she said it's it's a bit unusual because you progressives, whenever you're talking about inequality, you're 
angry, you're criticising us, you're telling us everything that's wrong. But occasionally you need to make our hearts swell with pride. You need to inspire the best in us and you need to tell stories that talk about how extraordinary the Australian uh, uh, spirit is and how big the Australian heart can be. Uh, And to tell those stories of people like... Uh, Frank Lowy and Ando and uh, all the others is, uh, is, I think, pretty important. Yeah, I mean, we have seen that fear and division works electorally and, um, you know, it gets people on the side of the leaders that want to employ the tactics of fear and division. But what kind of society does that build? And can't we, instead of aspiring to... Um, stop vulnerable people coming to Australia to have a new life. Can't we aspire to be compassionate and welcoming and just and inclusive? And, yeah, you know, there there are um, policy details to work out, but can't we start with an aspiration of building a healthy society where everyone's welcome to contribute and thrive? And so that's, that's where we believe the conversation should start and... Um, and not to use, yeah, the the most vulnerable people in the world as a uh, expendable pawns in your political game. But um, yeah, maybe maybe that Australians would respond if our leaders led with vision and um, positivity and a and a picture of the communities we could build instead of a um, a negative picture of the world and and those that might want to live amongst us. Now, there's pastors in the in the past who have uh, started organisations and led movements and and begun uh, uh, in-house events or rallies. Yeah. But as far as I know, you're unique in stepping into the political realm. You've had some time working for Jay Weatherall in South Australia, and then. Uh, most controversially, uh, worked for Tony Burke as uh, Immigration Minister in 2013. Mm. What made you make that decision, knowing that invariably in stepping into the political realm um, you would lose your ability to articulate with um, ideological purity and you would be in the, in, in the environment of, of compromise that's inevitable to, to mainstream politics? Yeah, first of all, Welcome to Australia from the beginning had a stated value of fighting for outcomes for people, not ideology for activists. Um, And that, uh, yeah, changing the lives of real humans was more important to me than whether other people in um, activist land thought I was as pure as them or not. Um, And that I guess my... For me, my motives are for me, like other people can judge my motives and they will no matter what you do. Like some of the most purest people I know are hated by many because they those people have decided what that first person's motives are for themselves without knowing them. So that's going to happen whenever you get profile, whenever you're a public figure, whenever you're doing anything, people will assume your motives. And so for me, we made Outcomes for People the the primary driver of our decision-making. But working for Tony was um, definitely a big risk to the to Welcome to Australia as an organisation and to, and I guess to whether the gamble that I could get better outcomes for people on the inside 
than the outside would actually pay off. And so the conversation with, with Tony was, um, it was close to election time. Um, he could have hired an advisor that would, you know, mostly focus on things that would help win the election um, or win more votes in the election coming up. Could have used me for anything really or an advisor for anything. But he very clearly said we've got a small window of time to do good things for people in detention centres on the Australian mainland. Um, we can't do um, a great deal about the Manus Island Detention Centre as it opens, but if you want to come and work f for the next, I think it was 14 weeks we had left when I started, on helping people in... Um, Australian detention centres move into the community and especially with a special focus on unaccompanied minors, then that's what I want you to come and do. And so I said, if that is really what you want me to do, then I'll give it a go and see. And so there was a positive for me in the sense of learning how the thing I was protesting or critiquing or you know, how it works from the inside when you're a person on the outside who has an opinion about an issue that you want to nicely shout in Welcome to Australia's case or angrily shout in <laughs> in other people. Like, you know, if you've got an opinion about that, it's one thing to be on the outside going, you people need to do better. Um, I think for me it was a benefit in being on the inside and seeing what does it actually look like to do better? Like what are the mechanisms that need to be um, altered in order for better outcomes for people? What are the levers for change? Um, and does shouting at a MP while they walk down the street actually help you achieve the change that you desire? So there was that. But then on in regards to the actual role, like it was I uh, spent the, the time getting hundreds of families out of detention, every unaccompanied minor on the, um, unaccompanied minors, people that came by boat without their, their parents, kids. Um, we, Tony signed the last, uh, 37 kids, I believe out the night before, uh, election day and a whole lot of, uh, very vulnerable adults who'd been in, uh, single men, especially who'd been in detention for, for years. Um, and, you know, could be anticipated that when um, the Liberal government came in that they would probably, they might still be here now while I'm talking to you today if we hadn't um, helped some of them to move into the community. And so to me, you know, I did cop it from um, parts of, of the refugee sector, but, you know, I felt like I got more done in 13 weeks in terms of outcomes for people than I had in all the previous time spent campaigning. You then uh, went back to, uh, to, to the church. Uh, what, what do you, uh, what, what have you enjoyed in, uh, now that you're coming up to your decade uh, at running Activate? What are the aspects of being a pastor that you find most personally fulfilling? The things, that, the things I find most personally fulfilling are when people make the switch to their faith not being about themselves but about being for others. That's probably the main one. I love um, the opportunity to 
mess with people's perception of what a, what the church is or what Christians believe or, or whatever. Um, you know, the, that to be a person of faith or a Christian faith in particular, you must be, um, you must hate Muslims or you must, um, you know, judge people because they're sinners or you must um, be a conservative, you must vote liberal or family first, or, you know, you must be on that side of the, the spectrum, I guess, trying to tell the story of um, a faith that, intends to follow someone who spent their whole life with the marginalised and including people who everyone else excluded and who was killed for um, for undermining the power of the religious institutions of the day. And, you know, that's the person we say we follow and, and our faith should look a bit more like that, <laughs> I think. And so, um, yeah, so that's part of what I enjoy. Probably lately I've just loved we left our denomination to be inclusive of um, the queer community in a full sense, you know, fully uh, open to being in leadership and um, all the functions of the, the church. And it has been just amazing seeing people who have not been able to find a place that they could belong and practice their faith at the same time. Um join us and find that freedom has been just emotional and amazing and, and yeah, incredible. It was a big call to leave Australian Christian churches. Uh, one of the ironies I recall at the time, which is uh, a year ago now, uh, is as, as I recall you, uh, you left because of your uh, community stance over marriage equality and in the process you lost your own uh, marriage licence. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, but the, the, uh, the new people who've come to the church, how, uh, how have they shaped the existing parishioners? I mean, in one way it's very similar to the refugee conversation that we had earlier that when you humanise an issue and it's your friend that you're fighting for to be able to be married or be fully included. It's very different than when you're having a theological conversation about um, an amorphous group of people out there that I've never met or, or spent time with. Now, that hasn't changed every person's opinion, that that close proximity. We've um, you know had families leave our congregation and... Um, and, you know, and, yeah, that sense of even hearing multiple stories of, um, you know, people's personal experience doesn't change everyone, but it has changed lots of people's minds and and, um, and it probably really cemented this concept that we exist for those on the, on the margins or those who are ex- excluded. It's really cemented that because, I mean, we've, we've gone on this funny journey, really, where first we were, when we first started, we were the strange social justice church. So other, you know, other churches had heard of social justice, at least in our movement, and we were kind of open to it, but we were all about that, so that was a bit strange. Then we were the refugee church, which was, you know, we get it, but it's a bit still a bit 
you know, are you just trying to convert them all? And if not, why not? And, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then we were the Muslim church, which is, you know, I was getting death threats for supporting halal certification. And and so uh, on the night of the Sydney siege, I put up a photo where I was, um, I organised uh, prayer vigils in mosques around the country with a friend and put up a photo of myself praying with an imam in um, in the mosque in uh, Adelaide and just like the Christian community just could not get the head, <laughs> head around that. How can you pray in a mosque? How can you? All of that stuff. So we'd been now with a Muslim church and then, but we'd kind of still been within the bounds of some kind of acceptability. And then as soon as we said we were now going to be formally inclusive of um, the LGBTIQ community, well, then that was beyond the bounds of <laughs> acceptability. So, yeah, it had been a very interesting journey. So now that people that have stuck with our community are, um, they recognise the cost that it is to them in in regards to how their family feel about them and a lot of our people get told by their family and friends that they're heretics all the time and you know so they're they're there because they're happy to wear that <laughs> that moniker to a degree when you're dealing with people who are marginalized and suffering how do you maintain a sense of gratitude in yourself and and try and engender it in others it's one thing to tell somebody who's uh, been hit up the bum by a rainbow that they should be happy every day it's another thing to turn around to somebody who's copped an awful lot of hate in life and tell them that they need to be more grateful well I don't think it's anyone's place to tell someone to be more grateful I think um, the only responsibility that we have is to walk alongside people in whatever they're they're going through and to be authentic in our own response to our situation. So I think for some people our positivity and outlook, despite what is often the case in our family situation, that helps some people to see a different way, a different perspective on life. Um, I think sometimes it's a strategic thing as well. Like, yes, you're angry. Yes, you probably hate that person. But what you're actually after is this outcome here and is an expression of hate and anger going to get you to that outcome? So sometimes there's that. Um, but I think it's about, for me, when it comes down to it, it's about hope. Like, hope is what um, I guess makes me get up in the morning. Like hope that if we um, can model a, if we can be a small example of what the world could be like, then that can be a sign of hope for people. So that's, I guess, what we hope Activate is. It's what we really hope the Welcome Centre is at uh, Welcome to Australia. It's even what we hope Walk Together is in a in a way. Our like annual march is like a a snapshot of maybe it could be like this. Maybe it could be where we're all together celebrating our diversity and standing side by side with people that are that are suffering and, and struggling rather than um, rather ignoring them or 
<clears throat> you know, thinking about our next uh, holiday and next purchase, maybe we could have our hearts and minds inclined to those that have less than us. And I have to ask you, as a, as a pastor, I mean, there's, there's one speech that many of us will make in a church, um, and that's a eulogy. Yeah. Uh, you must have heard tens, if not hundreds, of eulogies. <laughs> um, for those of us who never deliver a sermon, but may, <laughs> may well deliver, deliver a eulogy. eulogy, what tips have you got? What makes a good eulogy? Oh, that is a good question. Well, that, the hardest one I... Hardest funeral I ever did was for a baby, and it's very hard to even think of how to approach that with a with a sense of hope and and positivity. Um, and so, but it probably has made me think about the fact that a eulogy, yes, tells the story of the person who has passed, but also is about providing um, words and direction and, and hope when you can for the family that remains. And, um, yeah, so for me, a, a eulogy is trying to to capture the, the essence of the person that you are um, eulogising rather than just a relation of the positive events in their life. And it's not always the easiest thing to do, but how can you, I don't know, hope the, hopefully this is helpful for your listeners, but <laughs> how can you, you know, help those in the, in the audience think, here's somebody who really knew this person. They're not just, um, they're not just here to relate the history, but they get the character of the person that we're remembering and they are, um, able to empathise with us because they get that that wasn't just a series of events that happened, but this was a person that was that was uh, loved and cherished in in a way that, as an audience member, I can see that that person loved and cherished them in the same way as I do. Does Brad, that help you? <laughs> it does. Thank you. No worries. Let me finish with a handful of uh, rapid-fire questions. Do it. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? When I was a teenager, I didn't drink a drop of alcohol till I was 18. Then I started drinking and became a mad alcoholic until uh, 11 years ago when I stopped drinking again. And so if I could give any, and caused a lot of people a lot of damage in that um, in that period. So if I could give my teenage self any uh, advice, it would be not to have ever started drinking because I have a very addictive personality and whatever I do, I do very hard. <laughs> and maybe if my teenage self had known that, it would have caused, would have saved a lot of people a lot of pain. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Oh, geez, there's a lot. If, if you know my uh, religious history, there's a lot in that <laughs> regards. Well, I now just believe that all people are... Completely equal, regardless of gender, sexuality, ethnicity, culture, that all people should be um, equally loved and valued and included in society. Um, and there would be definite... People could probably find the audio tapes somewhere, the cassette tapes somewhere of me, <laughs> of me preaching the opposite of that. <laughs> when are you most happy? 
most authentic answer to that is at the moment when I see Harrison happy. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? I am the kind of extrovert that it, that for me it's not about being the loudest person in the room, but it's about I the, the fact that I energise by being around lots of people. So although most people think the, the healthiest thing for me to do would be to get more sleep, uh, at my tired, I actually need to go and hang out with a lot of people and have a good party. So <laughs> that's the healthiest thing I do. In the post-alcohol era, do you have any guilty pleasures? Yeah, I smoke cigars. <laughs> and like I said, <laughs> no, a nice Cuban cigar is my guilty pleasure <laughs> and far too much coffee. But <laughs> And finally, Brad, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I think that I aspire to live according to the lifestyle that I see reflected in the, the stories of Jesus in the in the Gospels to the in regards to the complete selflessness I don't think that I attain that but I think that is the that's the target you know this idea that other people are important enough to um, give up everything for is my aspiration I think um the things that have um taken me to this point are actually not so much like a hero that I look up to or or something like that but more the individuals and people and communities that I've met who have been on the receiving end of people living the opposite way like receiving end of greed and exploitation and and people um using others to advance their own power, when you see the impact of that on individuals and then those individuals become your friends, um, at least for me there is no other way that I can respond except to try and undermine that greed and that um, inequality that exists because when it comes down to it, most of us live for our own self-interest and that... Um, is often at the expense of other people's interests and definitely at the expense of the common good. And so, um, yeah, so to me the most inspirational people in terms of how can I live an ethical life are not necessarily others that are doing so, although I could name many, but more the people that are living through the outcomes of our society's and capitalist system and consumeristic um, culture who are living the impact of all of that. Well, Brad Chilcott, uh, pastor, political activist and radical altruist, thanks for appearing <laughs> on the Good Life podcast Thank today. you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.